We're going to start in Matthew 4, 17 through 5, 1. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, and, uh, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sickness, or all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. All right, turn to Matthew 7, 28 through 1. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. This is the very word of God. The Sermon on the Mount is a well-known passage and, indeed, a well-respected one. Franklin Roosevelt once said, I doubt if there is any problem in the world today, social, political, or economic, that would not find happy solution if approached in the spirit of the Sermon on the Mount. Even non-Christians have been drawn to its teaching. Mahatma Gandhi said that if he were evaluated only on his views on the Sermon of the Mount, he would not hesitate to say, oh yes, I am a Christian. Now, I find that interesting, especially since the people who seem to have the most trouble with the Sermon on the Mount are professing Christians. There are some pretty different takes on the sermon among Christians, such that it may be no stretch to say that one's reading of the sermon says much about one's understanding of Jesus and Christian theology as a whole. One's reading and understanding of the sermon says much about how you read and understand Jesus and the entire biblical story. So any attempt to interpret the Sermon on the Mount will require some degree of stage setting. And that's what I wish to do this morning. We need to back up a bit and get a running start. As we approach the Sermon on the Mount, we need to pay attention to Jesus' summons, first to repent, second to follow, and then lastly to learn. Repent, follow, 
learn. First, the Sermon on the Mount demands or calls everyone to repentance. Now, notice that those are the first words that Matthew records of Jesus as he begins his public ministry there in our first verse in our text this morning. These are the words, of course, that John the Baptist was proclaiming in the previous chapter in Matthew chapter 3. Now, if we're going to read the Sermon on the Mount rightly and therefore understand Jesus and the entire biblical story, then we have to respond to Jesus' call, his summons, his demand that we repent. But what does it mean to repent? You probably heard that the basic meaning of the word is a change of mind. But what exactly does Jesus insist that we change our mind about? We should seek to be as clear here as possible. If we say, as too often I think Christians are thought to say, well, Jesus commands us to repent of sin, then we will only find ourselves in a further dilemma. What sins does Jesus call us to repent of as we approach the Sermon on the Mount? And what if there is sin in my life that I don't even know is sin? How can I repent something I don't even know I need to repent of? And what if, by chance, not all Christians agree about whether this or that is a sin in need of repentance? The other problem that we will have here is the confusion that saying repent of some specific sin will bring to us is the degree to which I will have to change my actual behavior and not just my mind about such sins. I don't know about you, but it's one thing for me to say, I hate this particular thing in my life. It's quite a different thing to actually eliminate it. So there may be plenty of things that I don't really need to change my mind about. It's the behavior that needs to change, and that's not always so easy. Now, I find it interesting that throughout the New Testament, sin is not the object that follows the verb repent. The New Testament doesn't usually say, there's some hints toward this, but it never explicitly says, repent of sin, Uh, Not here, and it appears not anywhere else in the New Testament, is Jesus calling us to repent of some kind of specific sin or behavior in your life. And unfortunately, that's how so many Christians understand repentance. I mean, you should repent of your sins. I think that's a worthy thing to change your mind about. But Jesus is not calling us here as we approach the Sermon on the Mount. He is not calling here for his audience then or today, to stop doing some specific sin that God hates. Repent does not mean stop doing this or stop doing that. It's actually more radical than that. What Jesus is commanding here as we approach the Sermon on the Mount is, well, in words that we might use, a conversion, a complete turning away from one way of being in the world to another way of being in the world. He is commanding here, when he says repent, a total life transformation. 
Now, what we should notice then, the object or what is the explanation for the command to repent, right here in this text, is the word, the kingdom or the kingdom of heaven. Repent for, or probably better translated, repent because the kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is the arrival of the kingdom of heaven that calls for and demands a total life change of mind or transformation. And the reason that we misunderstand the command to repent and therefore find ourselves running headlong into the Sermon on the Mount with all kinds of wrong expectations is because we don't ground it in the reality of the coming kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, the two phrases are not much different, if at all, in meaning, is the end to a story that's been a long time coming. Practically, the entire Old Testament tells us a story which is set to culminate or or come to its end in the arrival of the kingdom of God. The story that we read about in the Old Testament is simply the story of a creator God and the world that he made. And because God so loves the world that he made, he is determined to save it from destruction. Now, that kind of language is the kind of language you will hear even in the news of the day. The world is doomed. The earth is falling apart. We're killing each other. You can see then why one of our former presidents would say that the Sermon on the Mount has the solution to virtually everything that plagues us in the world that we live in today. God's plan all throughout the Old Testament is that he who made the world and loves his world is determined to save it. And that's what the kingdom of God is all about. This salvation that God promised would come, he also promised would come through his people, the people of Israel. You can't really understand the kingdom of God without understanding the story of the people of God in the Old Testament, the people of Israel. The promise was made all the way back at Genesis chapter 12 to Abraham that through him and through his descendants, the end of the story would come. God would bring salvation to his world through his chosen agents, through his chosen people. This salvation that would one day arrive would be the long-awaited kingdom of God. And that's exactly what Jesus said was now arriving with his life and ministry. Repent, he says, because the story is coming to an end. The long-awaited kingdom of God has come, has drawn near. The call to repentance then is a call to believe Jesus and to believe that he was, in fact, inaugurating the promised end of the story. Now, what if we don't believe him? What if we don't repent? Well, that's no problem if Jesus did not make good on his claim. But if, in fact, Jesus did establish the kingdom of God, 
then to not repent, to not believe him, would mean that you are putting yourself against the long-awaited end, the promised kingdom of God, the way of salvation. The kingdom of God, then, is not good news for you. It would be terrible news, destructive news. And this is how the Sermon on the Mount demands to be read. It is nothing less than a manifesto about the kingdom of God and how things are going to be done now that God rules. The repentance that Jesus is calling for then is to put aside all other ways and ideas that run counter to his kingdom policies and agendas and align our minds with his. If the kingdom of God has come, then citizens of that kingdom must abide by its aims. And that makes a huge difference if you have all that in your mind as you approach the Sermon on the Mount. You see, if you come to these next three chapters, I'm just trying to set the stage. I'm trying to warn you. If you come to them and hear everything that Jesus has to say in the sermon as prerequisites to fulfill so that you can enter the kingdom of God, presumably when you die, then you will misunderstand the entire message. And lots of Christian readers make that mistake. But if, on the other hand, we have a view of a kingdom that has already come, that is already here right now, then we can read the sermon for the wisdom that it promises to give us as citizens of an already kingdom. That's how we have to approach it. Okay, now next, we are told about Jesus. Did you see this? The next thing he does is he calls his first disciples, Simon Peter, Andrew, James, John. Jesus calls them, in, I, honestly, which is a strange passage, don't you think? But here's the seed. He, he comes up, having said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And all of a sudden, he comes up to these guys who are fishing and says, follow me. This is the, the second context in which we have to read the Sermon on the Mount. We have to read it like disciples, like followers of Jesus. Not only is it time to repent because the kingdom of God has come, it's time to start living like citizens of a kingdom that's already here, but also it's time to follow. It's time to follow. You see, if the call for repentance is a call to change our mind, in light of the coming kingdom, reorienting our thinking about everything around Jesus and his way, then it is obvious that the whole point of repentance is the lifelong task. Did you hear that? The lifelong task of following Jesus, of being a disciple. It cannot mean following Jesus or being a disciple, cannot mean simply affirming truths about Jesus from a distance. That's sort of the danger even with something like the Apostles' Creed. If that's all you have, you're just affirming doctrines and truths from a distance, then you're going to miss the essence of what it means to be a disciple. It has to be more practical. 
It has to be more true to life than simply affirming truths. Now, it certainly was for these four men, right? I mean, in the passage, striking. And, and for the others who would soon join them as Jesus' first disciples. Following Jesus was not a metaphor for their private religious beliefs. It was true to life, as true as putting down their fishing poles, fishing nets, actually, and going where Jesus went. They would spend their days doing what? Being with him and learning from him. Now, what is going on here? What is Jesus doing? Why is Jesus recruiting disciples to literally follow him? When we get to the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5, these disciples have followed him all the way up a mountain where Jesus sits down and begins to teach them. And there's no doubt what Matthew in writing this gospel, is signaling. For one thing, in the gospel of Matthew, wherever, whenever Jesus goes up a mountain five times in the gospel of Matthew, it signals a moment of divine revelation. And in this instance, Sermon on the Mount, there are clear echoes of another time that someone went up a mountain and met with God. All the commentaries will point this out, that throughout the Sermon on the Mount, there are clear echoes of Moses' ascent to Mount Sinai, where he received the Torah. As we read through the Sermon on the Mount, it will become even more explicit that what Matthew is signaling to us, the way he's compiled the story, the way he's telling us the story, what he's signaling to us is that we are to see Jesus as the new and final Moses, the final arbiter of God's law, of God's teaching, of God's ways. You want to know what God thinks, you start with Jesus. It's not that Jesus has come to replace Moses. That's not the right wording. As you're going to see throughout the sermon, he says, I've come to fulfill not abolish, not replace. I've come to fulfill Moses and the Torah. He has come to bring, that is, the long-awaited promise to its completion. Now, let me pause here to make sure we get the point. So you've been dozing, time to wake up, just to make sure you get this down before we move on to the sermon. When we say that Jesus fulfills the promise... When we talk about Scripture being fulfilled, we do not simply mean that something that was predicted in the past has come true. We're not talking about fortune-telling here, as cute of a trick as that might be. What we mean here is something that was started, something that was promised, has been brought to its completion. We are talking about a story that has reached it's climactic moment. Now, if that's what Jesus is claiming to have done, that, just do your math, 2,000 plus years ago, if that's what Jesus is claiming is that in his life, the great story of the Bible has reached its climax, then you tell me 
literary scholars. Where does that put us in the story? What comes after the climax of the story? It's a French word. Say it. Wow. I, like, I was afraid to say it in French, so great job, Jared. That's it. The denouement. This is where we live. This is the time in which we are. And this is what Matthew wants us to see. Put yourself in the story. You're supposed to, as a disciple, put yourself in the story. For disciples of Jesus today, this is where we are. This is where we have to locate ourselves. We live after the moment of its great climax has come. We, lived in a, we live in the day where what are we supposed to do as disciples? What is our task for those of us who aim to follow Jesus? It's got to be something similar to what his first disciples were called to do. In verse 19, you notice Jesus tells them to leave their trade as fishermen and become fishers of men. From now on, Jesus says, you're going to not catch fish. You're going to catch people. You're going to catch humans. Now, what does that mean? I think we've made so many assumptions about that that this just made perfect sense. I'm not sure it did. I mean, if it, how do you go about catching people? And do these people even want to be caught? How is this going to happen? Presumably, this means that the task is to essentially recruit, recruit others to come and join in as disciples of Jesus and subjects of his kingdom. After all, this is what the prophets had said was to be expected when the promised kingdom of God had arrived. What would happen next? What would happen after the climactic moment of the kingdom of God? The prophets tell us all the nations will be drawn and will be coming in to this kingdom of God. It will attract everyone from everywhere. The command to evangelize the world is not a sign that the kingdom has not come. It is a sign that it has. Now, this is what we see Jesus himself doing right from the start. Did you notice it? By the time, it was at the end of our scripture reading today, by the time that we get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we are told that the crowds were astonished at his teaching. He was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. By the time Jesus finishes the Sermon on the Mount, he's getting some attention. He's attracting people to himself. And presumably, as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, we too are, should be astonished. We should join in on the amazement of the teachings of Jesus and what that might mean in the world we live in today. Our task as disciples of Jesus is to help others see the astonishment of Jesus. And it probably would help if you were astonished first. So what is so astonishing about Jesus? Looking at what Matthew tells us at the end of chapter 4, we notice that Jesus was going around teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Now, I don't have time for us to look at all of this, but Matthew reports the exact same words 
describing the activity of Jesus at the end of Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. So here in Matthew chapter 4 and at the end of chapter 9, Matthew says almost the exact same thing, summarizing the ministry of Jesus. This is a literary device. It's supposed to catch your attention. Uh, And what's happening here is that must mean that everything in between, chapters 5 through 8, are meant to give us the details of this general sketch of the mission and ministry of Jesus. What does he go around doing? What, what attracts people to him? He does two things. He teaches and he heals. These two activities are inseparable in defining the mission of Jesus. Pay attention now. You cannot just be amazed at Jesus teachings, and then walk away. Neither can you be amazed at what Jesus does and ignore his teachings. If you want to understand Jesus and you want to be a disciple and you want to be amazed, then you cannot just listen to his teachings and assume they have nothing to do with the real life problems that you face tomorrow at work. Not when Jesus himself touches lepers, praises the faith of a Roman centurion, exercises demons, calms storms, gives sight to the blind. That too, but it's not in this section. Maybe it is, actually. I don't think it is. Okay, Matthew is giving us the whole picture of Jesus, and we need to keep the whole picture in mind as we study the Sermon on the Mount. Yes, of course, Jesus teaches. That's what he's going to do in chapters 5 through 7. He speaks with authority. He teaches, but he also touches. He touches. He associates with the gentle and the lowly. This is who Jesus is. Matthew wants us to see that this is who Jesus is. In his book on the Sermon on the Mount, Jonathan Pennington observes that since the Christian claim is that Jesus is the revelation of God himself in a human being, when we see Jesus as Matthew wants us to see him, we see a complete image of what it means to be like God. And, he writes, it is only now, at this unique moment, that the biography of God can be written. You want to know who God is? This is the climactic moment. You look at Jesus. He teaches and he touches. This is who God is. And Matthew wants us to hear Jesus' message in the Sermon on the Mount And he also wants us to see his actions in the next two chapters. And then he wants to impress upon our consciences the question, so what are you going to (laughs) do? What are you going to do about Jesus? Some will find themselves impressed with his teachings. Others will find themselves drawn by his actions. But together, his teaching and his touching, these are meant to invite us in. They're meant to catch us like fish drawing us in 
be his disciples. The next section in Matthew, by the way, starting in chapter 10, after the repeat of what he says in chapter 4, begins with these words. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Do you see what's happening? You can't miss it. Those who find themselves caught by Jesus are challenged not only to hear his words, but also to put them into practice for the sake of the world. It's kind of like the children's recess game, sharks and minnows. You ever watch the kids do that? Have you been caught by Jesus? Then it's time to join him in catching others. Now, how are we going to do it? How do you catch people for the kingdom of God? I mean, I'm not, I don't fish. I've done it a few times. It's been a long time. And I don't plan on going back anytime soon. But I'll tell you this, when you watch somebody fishing, it kind of looks easy. But anybody who knows anything about fishing or any other sport knows that you got to learn. There's a skill set. There's a technique. There's a way to do it. And so it is here. You can't just go about saying, I'm going to be a catcher of men and do it however you want. Nope. Got to learn his way. Got to learn his way. And the Sermon on the Mount tells us it's not just time to repent because the kingdom has come. The climax of the story has arrived. It's not just time to follow because Jesus is the revelation of who God is in bodily form. There it is. You can write the biography. It is time, therefore, to learn. You ready to be a student? You ready to enroll in the class? You got to be a learner. Matthew chapter 5, verse 2, as we begin the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus opens his mouth and he teaches. Are you ready to learn from him? Are you ready to engage with the Sermon on the Mount? Are you ready for the Sermon on the Mount to challenge you, Christian? For what you have always thought is the way to go about attracting people, catching people for the kingdom of God. Are you ready to have those assumptions challenged and transformed by the way of Jesus? We're trying to set the stage before we get into this next week. Because it's getting uncomfortable for some of us and some of our ways. You've got to engage with the Sermon on the Mount. You've got to learn. And I have to warn you, I have to warn you, that it will be so tempting to evade the lessons of the sermon rather than to engage them. This is just going to come so natural. Is when you hear the teaching of Jesus, the way of the kingdom, it will be so tempting for every one of us to dismiss to evade rather than to engage. History tells us this. Uh, during the medieval period, there developed a, a pietistic way of reading the Sermon on the Mount. This meant that the sermon was the way toward a higher level of spirituality. Every, all of us other ordinary Christians didn't have to pay much attention because you, but you can't live up to the standards of the Sermon on the Mount. This is only for the, the, the holy people. 
right? This is only for the, the spiritually mature people. Now, the Protestant reformers rejected this double standard. But interestingly, Martin Luther's view was that the sermon was indeed impossible for anyone, forget mature Christians, for anyone to live by. And so the whole purpose of the Sermon on the Mount, this is pretty Lutheran, uh, the whole purpose of the Sermon on the Mount was to essentially leave you helpless, broken, desperate. Come to Jesus, find his forgiveness, go in peace. But Luther's solution to the pietistic reading of the sermon has had a similar effect on countless Christians who almost seem to find it more honorable to not even try to order their lives by the Sermon on the Mount. I can't do it. It's impossible. I need Jesus. Just leave it back here. I'm telling you, it's going to be easy and tempting to evade the sermon rather than to engage it. We should reject both of these ways of evading the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, others in the Reformed tradition, by the way, have pointed out that it makes all the difference when we see the commands like the ones we find in the sermon within the context of grace and redemption. It's not unlike the giving of the Ten Commandments given to Israel, not prior to their exodus from Egypt, but after they'd already been rescued and redeemed. Do you see the difference? I hope you see the difference. Jesus does not give the Sermon on the Mount as the prerequisite for entering the kingdom of God, but he is teaching us to be his disciples now that we are in the kingdom of God. He's teaching us how to be his people, and it's a lifelong project. It's a lifelong project. Why should it surprise anyone that paupers have to learn to live like royals? What intrigues me at this point, by the way, is how different the Sermon on the Mount is interpreted by Christians in different times and places. Again, Jonathan Pennington, I recommend his book on the Sermon on the Mount. It's fantastic. He notes in his uh, introduction to the sermon, he notes a few of the distinctive readings that people in different times and places, and here especially in different places, have had about the sermon. Just take, just take this in. A typical Chinese Christian reading took it for granted that the sermon has character formation as its aim and goal. And there's no debate about that, even though we Westerners fight and argue over that, if that's what he's doing. It, it kind of typical in East Asia that that's just taken for granted. Obviously, that's what Jesus is doing. The South Korean perspective often focuses on the material blessings that seem to be promised to those who follow the sermon and its precepts. Christians in India found the sermon's focus on nonviolence and truth-telling to be the essence of true religion. There are also unique distinctions, Pennington shows us, in how African and African-American people read the sermon. All of this suggests, guess what? that you also come with your own assumptions when you read the sermon. You come with your own biases, your own cultural lens as you read it. And, and rather than assuming that only one of these readings is the right one, we should be prepared 
to see all of them as making important contributions to our understanding of how people in all times and places are supposed to live as the people of God. Yet we need each other. We need the whole church, the Holy Catholic Church, to learn how to live as the people of God. At the end of the day, we must remember that the Sermon on the Mount is not actually what we are called to follow. Rather, Jesus is our leader. We are called to learn from him. But the Sermon on the Mount is given to us as one of the most significant teachings of Jesus in all the Gospels. It's the most commented upon section of the Jesus tradition in all of history, is the Sermon on the Mount. And we who find Jesus compelling must pay attention to what he is teaching us in these chapters. Why? Because this is his way. And walking his way is how we will catch people for his kingdom. You try to do it your way, you're not catching people for the kingdom of God. You might make disciples of you, but you're not making disciples of Jesus. Not walking his way is how you repel people, turn them away from the kingdom. And unfortunately, we Christians do that a lot. Russell Moore, who now serves as editor-in-chief for Christianity Today, said recently in an interview with NPR why it is that he thinks Christianity is in crisis in America. Here's what he said. Well, I came to this conclusion as the result of having multiple pastors tell me essentially the same story about quoting the Sermon on the Mount parenthetically in their preaching. Turn the other cheek. Only to have someone come up after and say, where did you get those liberal talking points? And what was alarming to me is that in most of these scenarios, when the pastor would say, I'm literally quoting Jesus Christ, the response would not be, oh, I'm sorry, I apologize. The response would be, yes, I know, but that doesn't work anymore. That's too weak. And then Russell Moore says this, when we get to the point where the teachings of Jesus himself are seen as subversive to us, we're in a crisis. No wonder the church in the West has so much difficulty catching people anymore. I mean, if we are just like everyone else with the power of the kingdoms of men as our trusted source of strength, why would anyone think that we have something better to offer them? The Sermon on the Mount will challenge us to live by a different power, indeed by a different kingdom. Are you ready for it? Stanley Hauerwas observed that the basis for the Sermon on the Mount's teaching is not what works. Turning the other cheek usually doesn't work. It's not what works. It's the way God is. The gift that we've been given for the sake of the world, he says, is, quote, not a stratagem for getting what we want, but the only manner of life available now that in Jesus we have seen what God wants, end quote. This is how we have to read the Sermon on the Mount. It is a call for us who call ourselves Christians to come and learn. 
learn the way of Jesus by following him, ruthlessly repenting from all other ways of being in the world. This is why, Crosstown, we need the Sermon on the Mount so that as we follow the ways of Jesus, by God's grace, others will be attracted to him as well and find themselves caught for the kingdom of God. Let's pray. So, Father, as we set out now on this journey together,